We're in John chapter 4. We're working our way through the story of Jesus and his encounter with the woman at the well in the city of Sychar in Samaria. And uh, there was a lot to cover last week. And um, as it was, I started studying for this, and I thought, my goodness, I'm going to go long again. And so I'm going to just give you little pieces of this this morning, all right? So I don't think anybody, I, I, I didn't realize until I, I edited the message on sometime last week that, oh, my goodness, I went long. And, and, and uh, anyway, I don't think I, well, there's a few people not here this morning, so maybe that's why. But anyway, uh, well, such as it is, but, and Anyway, somebody told me, we never really noticed until we got out of church and looked at our watch and said, what happened, right? And the, oh, he went long, that's why. Anyway, but, but this is really a, a wonderful story. And Jesus uh, here having this conversation and this act of, of speaking uh, and spending time with this Samaritan woman, really breaking several of the social norms at that time. And so he has gone to Sychar, it's around noon, He's having this conversation with this woman, and he asks for a drink. You know the story. He asks for a drink, and, and of course, she immediately pushes back on him and asks him the question, why is it that you, being a Jew, would ask me, a Samaritan, for a drink when uh, Jews have nothing to do with Samaritans? And so the conversation goes on, and he tells her, I'm going to pick this up in verse 13 to back up just a touch to get a running start into this. I'll read to you out of the New American Standard 2020. It says, Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, referring to the water in the well. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never be thirsty But the water that I will give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me water so that I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw water. And he said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said to him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This which you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet, and our fathers worship on this mountain, and yet you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one must worship. Jesus said to her, believe me, woman, that a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know, and we worship what we do know, because salvation is from the Jews. But a time is coming, and even now has arrived, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And so, Lord, we pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning, that you would open up our understanding to your scripture. 
that you would fill us with your spirit that we might receive from you. We thank you, Lord, again for the opportunity that you gave us this morning just to come to your table and to take of the body and drink of the blood. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to do this work in us and through us as we hear your word and apply it to our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Last Sunday I spoke some on the, uh, the division between the Samaritans. One's water, one's coffee, by the way. All right. So anyway, the division between the Samaritans and the, the Jews. I did some more reading on it. I found it was fascinating. It was, uh, and the interesting thing, I think it was George, I've said this to you before, guys, but I think it was George Santayana who was a philosopher. He wasn't a Christian, he was a philosopher, and philosophers actually get things right from time to time, at least I believe they do. And he is credited with the saying, those who forget the past are condemned to repeat it. And so there's a lot of lesson here for us, here because this, this, this conflict between Jews and Samaritans it actually began politically. It was a political opposition. Now, the Samaritans, they claimed to be descendants of Joseph. I did some more digging on this. And, and, and um, they lived around the area of Mount Gerizim, which was considered to be their holy mountain, and the area of Shechem. Um, and they were originally a part of the, what we call the Northern Kingdom. Descendants of Joseph or descendants of Ephraim or descendants of Manasseh. And the opposition, like I said, initially between the, the southern and northern kingdoms uh, was initially political. First Kings chapter 12, uh, actually First Kings chapter 11 through 14 really discuss it. But First Kings chapter 12, um, God has taken 10 of the tribes away from Rehoboam who is whom? The son of Solomon. He has split the kingdom in two. He's given it to a guy named Jeroboam. He essentially made the same promise to Jeroboam if he would be faithful in following, following uh, Torah, following the rules, following the law, following the teachings, faithful to walking with the Lord. He made essentially the same covenant with, with Jeroboam that he really made with, uh, to, to a, a lesser degree, but that he had made with Solomon, that he would be with Jeroboam. And Jeroboam uh, became worried because of this political strife between the southern and northern kingdom. Matter of fact, they really had a civil war over the whole thing. So he came up with this brilliantly stupid, there's an oxymoron for you, idea, because he was worried that if his people would keep going to Jerusalem, which was the place that Torah said they were to go worship, right? He, he didn't identify it so much as Jerusalem as that place that God will choose from, for himself. It's in the book of Deuteronomy. He was worried that his people would continue to go to Jerusalem, which is where? The southern kingdom or Judah. And he feared that if they were there, that eventually they would want to reunite with the southern kingdom. And he would no longer have a kingdom. 
So we came up with a great idea. I tell you what, you don't have to travel to Jerusalem to worship, which, by the way, according to Torah, males were required to go three times a year. But you don't have to do that. Let's set up alternative sites to do worshiping of the Lord. And he put one in Dan, and he put one in Bethel. And of all things, you had to wonder if this guy ever read the Bible. Because what did those sites consist of? Golden calves. Now, does that ring a bell? It should ring a bell. It's what they did at Sinai when Moses was up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, and the people got concerned, and they didn't know what happened to Moses, so they, they got Aaron to, to fasten this golden calf for them. And they referred to the golden calf as Yahweh, the one who had delivered them and brought them out of Egypt. And complete violation of, of this idea of making a graven image. So he sets up a golden calf in Dan and in Bethel. Convenience. And it was to keep the people in his kingdom. Convenience, that was the, probably the marketing strategy. Yeah, they did marketing strategies back then. It was really all about control. That's what it was really about. So what began as political opposition became religious opposition. Because they developed their own customs. They developed their own interpretations. They had eventually their own line of priests. And that division became greater and greater. Eventually, the northern kingdom goes into captivity somewhere around the neighborhood of 722, 721 B.C. Eventually, the southern kingdom goes into captivity. 586 B.C., Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple is destroyed. And the Persians... This is found in the book of Ezra chapter 4 and Nehemiah chapter 4 as well. The Persians set up a guy named Sanballat who ruled from Samaria. His rule included the southern kingdom of Judah. So they had this Persian puppet ruling in the southern kingdom, which created a huge problem when Ezra brought back those who would come to Jerusalem with a heart to build, to rebuild the walls, but also to rebuild what? The temple. So the political strife continued, and the religious strife continued. Eventually, the Samaritans create their own Torah, very similar to what the Jews used, with some variations, had their own priesthood. They only accepted Torah, essentially, as inspired. They really didn't pay a whole lot of attention to the wisdom writings, the Psalms, which are the wisdom writings among Ecclesiastes and others, nor the prophets. It's interesting how political strife, and we live in a time of political strife, eventually polarizes people in every facet of their understanding of culture, including their faith. We're seeing it today in the church. We're no different today 
than they were yesterday. Those who forget the past are condemned to repeat it. And I think, sadly, that's exactly what's going on in the church today. Now, some of the church, some of the church has apostatized themselves. I'm not going to go into that this morning. And I wish they would just call themselves something else. But I think at times the Jews wish the Samaritans would have called themselves something else. What fascinates me is that Jesus is trying to bridge that political and religious, that spiritual gap and bring to the Samaritans not only the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but he brings himself. He brings himself. So as we pick up the story, it's noon. It's the Middle East. It's hot. Most of the women in that time, in that culture, their custom was to go down to the well earlier in the morning. Made sense to me, right? This woman is there at noon, and apparently she's by herself, which gives a lot of implications of what her life was like in the city of Sychar. Jesus asked her for a drink. I already rehearsed some of that. But eventually tells her that everyone who drinks of the water from that well will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never be thirsty, but the water that I will give him will become in him or her a fountain of water springing up to eternal life. We really kind of covered this last week. The New King James says that the, the living water, that the person will never, will never thirst again. The, the actually, the literal translation out of the Greek into the English is not the word never, but never is probably a good representation of it. The, uh, the literal translation is no, not. You ever told that to, usually that sounds like an adult talking to a kid, doesn't it? No, not today, right? Right? And of course, none of you did that, right? Well, maybe we should have, never mind. Uh, but that's kind of the literal translation here is that, and, and what this is talking about is, is that we will, it's not so much that we will ever be spiritually thirsty or hungry again, but that which has been implanted in us, referring to the Holy Spirit, that which is implanted in us becomes the supply of that spiritual water that can quench our thirst. We either allow the Holy Spirit to quench our thirst or we quench the work of the Holy Spirit. It's really what it, what it boils down to. We, ha- we have the resources to, to, to never thirst again. Or when we become thirsty, we can immediately have our th- spiritual thirst quenched. Because Jesus referred to this on the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are he who is hungers and thirsts for what? Righteousness sake, for they will be filled. They will be filled. So this is what is available to us. Apollinaris of Laodicea, one of the earlier church fathers, 
refers to this water here that Jesus has spoken of, and I agree with him, refers to it as the Holy Spirit is promised here. This idea of a spiritual water that is spoken, it corresponds with the physical water, the water in the well. The spirit of wisdom whose presence is unceasing and gives of us or gives to us abundantly and freely. The spirit of God who gives to us abundantly and freely. Do you receive from the spirit of God abundantly and freely? Sometimes, how's that, all right? Do you receive from the Spirit of God abundantly and freely? That's what this is, what Jesus is saying to this woman. I'm giving you an opportunity of a new life. And she, still not completely tracking, although she's starting to get a little bit of an understanding of what he is saying, it says to her, Give me that water so that I will not be thirsty, nor that I'll have to come all the way down here and draw water. And he immediately, he immediately then says, go and get your husband. Go and get your husband. Why would he do that? He's already broken the cultural norm of even speaking to a woman, right? He's already broken that. So why, why, why all of a sudden go get your husband? And you see, to me, this is the $6 million question of this entire passage that we'll look at. Because we're only going to do a few more verses. We're going to be done this morning. All right. Go and get your husband. Well, she says, I don't have a husband. I'll get back to the $6 million question in a second. Okay. I don't have a husband. She said, well, Jesus says, well, you've spoken correctly because you've had five husbands. And now the guy you're living with, you're not even married to. Why did she have five husbands? They could have all died. Now, I thought about this this morning, Louise, because I thought, okay, um, if they did all die, for goodness sake, by the time husband three, four, and five came around, I think I would have thought twice, right? <laughs> You know, what's going on? We don't know why she had five husbands. Now, there are things that are presumed about this passage that may be true. She may have been divorced five times. Maybe. I did some different reading on, on, on Jewish thought. I couldn't find a whole lot of Samaritan thinking on this, Okay. But some of the Jewish thought, and by the way, I've told, there were different schools of thought in the Jewish faith at that time. Different schools, different denominations, right? There were the Pharisees, there were the Sadducees, the Essenes. There was the school of Hillel, there was the school of Shammai. It's often presumed that this woman was divorced five times, and that could possibly have been the case, and maybe she gave up and decided, I'm not going to get married anymore, but I'm going to live with this guy. Or the guy that he was, she was currently living would realize, I'm not going to marry you because I don't want to end up dead like the other five. We don't know. 
we presume, and probably so, that she was an outcast. Or why would she be at the well at noon instead of being there at 8? Who knows? And I don't think it was because she slept in that morning. That's just my thought. So there's a lot of things that are read in customarily in this passage that we don't know, and yet at the same time, we, we, we want to look at this and say, well, what exactly is going on? Because perhaps she was divorced. Now, in the best I could find in both Jewish and Samaritan culture at that time, women were not allowed to get a divorce. The men would give the woman a right of divorce. Now, Hillel, remember I said the school of Hillel? Hillel said you could divorce your wife if she burnt. I'm thinking of I'm trying to think of a good kosher food. It just escaped me. If she burnt the breakfast, how's that? If your wife burnt the breakfast, you could actually divorce her. That's what Hillel essentially taught. Um, Shammai said the only time you can divorce your wife at all if you find some kind of uncleanness in her. Moses does give the Jews, remember, Torah, and the Samaritans recognized Torah, although they kind of altered a little bit, but nonetheless it was pretty consistent with the Jewish Torah, all right? Moses said you could give your wife a writ of divorce, but only under certain circumstances. And who knows how much these Samaritans were really following Torah to begin with. We don't know. I have a suspicion. This is my thought on this. I have a suspicion that they were as what the prophet Isaiah said about the southern kingdom. You honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. That's why Jesus was there. Because he was looking to draw hearts toward him. So, whatever the case was with this woman, Jesus wanted to reach out to her. And Jesus wanted to heal her. And Jesus wanted to give her that living water that would never cause her to thirst again. So the question is, $6 million question. I almost forgot about it because like, where was I going on this? Okay. When you hear this story, okay, don't answer, okay? Because it is a trick question. When you hear this story, is Jesus dealing with her sin or is Jesus dealing with her need for love? The first thing that came to your mind will give you an indication of how you view these things. I, I taught a group of pastors. I hope they never listen to this this morning. They probably won't, so I'm probably safe telling you this. I taught a group of pastors. I taught about the woman who was caught in adultery. And I was wondering, and we did kind of a spiritual exercise with it, and I was wondering what they were going to really hear out of that passage. Did they hear, neither do I condemn you? Or did they hear, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more? Or did they simply just hear, go and sin no more? See, that tells me what kind of relationship that they have with, not only with the Lord, but with others. 
probably a good third of them, all they heard was go and sin no more. That scares me. Now, do you need both? Do you need Jesus to deal with our sin, but also to deal with our need for love? Do we need both? Those who worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. We're not even going to look at that this morning, okay? Just kind of give you a, a kind of a precursor to this. I think they, we do need both. But what do we lead with? Do we start with condemnation? Let's deal with your sin. You've got to get you stop sinning. If you're not sinning, we don't want you to come in here. If you can't sin, you can't do this, you can't do that. I, churches are just so filled with rules about what people can't do because they've sinned. Who hasn't sinned? Today. And, and, and Okay, I'm going to stop. I'm about ready to go on a roll, and I don't want to do that. Okay, so I'm reeling myself in this morning. What we need is living water. What we need is living water. And I, I love this because Jesus is tapping into the Psalms here. Psalm 65, verse 4. It says, Blessed is the man you choose and cause to approach you. Blesses the man you choose. Speaking to God. And cause to approach you. What is that? Cause to approach you. Worship. We'll get into that next week, by the way. We're not going to get into that this morning. Because I don't want to go long again. I don't want to go long two weeks in a row. Um, that he may dwell in your courts. It tells us. Psalm 65.4. We shall. That's for you. Uh, we shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, of your holy temple. See, next week, again, the whole conflict between, is it Mount Gerizim or is it Jerusalem? Is that, where do we worship? And the psalmist says, we will be satisfied with the goodness of your house. The goodness of your house of the living water. So you have the house of Halal, the house of Shammai, but the house of Jesus. We will be satisfied with your house. And then further in Psalm 36, verse 8 and 9, they are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your pleasures. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. I love that. I love that. You give them drink from the river of your pleasures. See, because I hear, neither do I condemn you in that story of the woman who was caught in adultery. That's what I hear. Especially when I read passages like I just read to you. Yes, there is the importance of going and sinning no more, but you can't have, you do not have the capacity to go and sin no more unless you realize that neither does he condemn you. Unless you realize that he is giving you living water from which you will never thirst again. Of which you realize that 
you give them drink from the river of your pleasures, for with you is the fountain of life. Speaking of the Holy Spirit. Jesus never intended for that woman to go and sin no more on her own. But with the help, with the aid, with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, who I believe dwelt in her from that moment, because I think she got saved that day, personally. And she received the living water. She had to ask for the water, which I find fascinating. And James tells us that we have not because we ask not. Or we ask amiss. I've been re- I'm, I'm still kind of, I'm, I'm reading something. I'm not going to talk about it yet. I shouldn't have mentioned it. But I'm reading, I'm reading a book on being shaped by the word. And, and the author is making, see if I can remember this correctly. The author is making a distinction between doing the work of God because you are moved by the Spirit of God to do that work and doing the work of God because you want the attention and the accolades and the glory that it often or sometimes can bring. Same work, same results, but two totally different motives. The woman had to ask. Luke 11, Jesus tells us, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You see, I think he is dealing with this woman's need for love. Now, I've, I, I've talked with people, done counseling with people in, in, with multiple marriages, which also means multiple failures in relationships. And unfortunately, usually with those folks, the marriage is not the only relationship that they have, that they have problems and issues with. It's usually pretty well spread across the board. But in, in the depth of who we are as people, I believe that we're created for connection. We're created to be connected. We're created to be connected to each other. We're created to be connected to God. And often it is that we go about that need for connection. This is the, the counseling in me coming out. <laughs> but anyway, that need for connection, we actually go about it in the wrong ways and we just kind of foul it up. Rather than first and foremost, the necessity for us to tap into the living water that already dwells in our souls. So how much more will our Heavenly Father, your Heavenly Father, give the Holy Spirit to you who ask Him? You have not because you ask not. 
And one of the things that I'm, personally, that I'm kind of working on, notice I said kind of, but anyway, that I'm kind of working on is, is, is ask for the power for the Holy Spirit after I've already blown it. Because to me, that's the hardest time to do it. Because I'm like, all right, I already just kind of messed this up. I might as well, do, I might as well just push, uh, push through in the flesh. I've already began on the flesh, right? Or maybe it's just me. I guess it's just me. No, obviously it's not. Anyway, but to, to stop yourself and say, Lord, I, I've, I've gone this far. Can you pull me out of this one? Please empower me by your Holy Spirit. That's what it means, I think, to walk circumvently. Redeeming the time because the times are evil. Because of the political strife in such a way that I've never seen it, at least in my lifetime. I think what's, what we are going through now makes the 60s look tame, personally. Jesus tells her to get her husband because he's cutting to the heart of the issue. He understands that she needs the living water, the spiritual water. And, and then goes on to tell her, yeah, you've spoken correctly because you've had five husbands and you're living with some dude right now. He stepped out of what we call the natural. And he stepped into what we call the supernatural. Now, I heard a pastor once, and I like this saying. I don't necessarily care for this guy's doctrine, but I'm not going to tell you who it is, so it doesn't matter. But he said, there is no supernatural with God. It's all natural for him. I thought, wow, that makes sense. It's all that he naturally does. For goodness sake, he created the universe. Who he is naturally just amazes me. But he stepped out of what we consider to be natural, and he stepped into that which we consider to be supernatural. I love her response. This is where we're going to kind of end. The woman said to him, verse 19, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. What an understatement. But nonetheless, now she's moving in the right direction. Do you see that? Now she's starting to move in the right direction because she is no longer thinking about the water and the well. She's starting to think about, I've got a prophet in front of me who has just told me about the five. And how in the world could he have known this? She recognized the anointing. By the way, the word anointing is also the word we get from Messiah. She recognized the anointing upon him. She recognizes that there's, that there's something special about Jesus. Now, she's, her understanding is going to broaden and going to deepen. But often it is. And let me, I'm not going to pre-qualify this. I'll explain what I'm about to say in a second. Often it is, it takes a supernatural work of God for us to really tap into the things of the Spirit, for us to really tap into the spiritual. 
Now, I'm I'm not necessarily talking about something supernatural that God does. Remember, supernatural according to our definition. I'm not really talking about something supernatural that, that, oh my goodness, now that we need to buy a semi-truck and take it on the road kind of a thing, right? God works very supernaturally in very natural ways. Anytime that I hear the Spirit of God speak to me, and I hope you guys hear the Spirit of God speak to you. I remember I, I mentioned that a few times. Someone said, do you actually hear him audibly? No, okay, right? But I, but I sense his voice. I hope you guys hear his voice every single day because that is a supernatural inbreaking into my world from the world of God Almighty through his Holy Spirit. And my work of God in his kingdom with his people as he's inbreaking into us and forming us and, and recreating us into the image of Christ. Which means that often it is somewhat disruptive because you will not become formed into the image of Christ all by yourself. It doesn't happen. And if you don't believe me, start studying more, start reading more, start praying more, and come back and see me in three months. And you'll probably have learned a whole bunch of stuff, and you'll start to think that, well, yeah, I am. And then we'll wait another three months and see how well that works for you. Our spiritual formation, our sanctification, is a supernatural work of God. And when God begins to approach us in those supernatural ways, those ways that we really can't quite comprehend in our natural thinking, and they may not necessarily be big things. You understand what I'm saying here, I hope, all right? Because I I think the supernatural comes at us more often than we even recognize. But I know that there are times in my day that all of a sudden it's... Sometimes it's like when you're driving down the road, you're driving down the road and you're only, you're going fast. Let's just say that, all right? You're going really fast and something just passes right by you all of a sudden. You realize that there was something there, but you're not sure what that was, right? So if you don't know what I'm talking about, get on the highway 20 speed. No, no, I'm kidding. Anyway, but, but when, when, you know, you catch something out of the corner of your eye, Do you catch things out of the corner of your spiritual eye? Ooh, that was God. See, when that happens, that makes me want to pursue it. That makes me a little thirstier, hungrier. And I don't say to Jesus, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. But I do say to the Holy Spirit, I think I'm in a holy moment right here. And to be like, I love the story of Samuel. Remember when he was a young kid and God started calling his name? And he thought that it was Eli calling his name. And so he woke the old man up and, and 
the old man who was the, the priest, the high priest, backslidden as anything, but had the insight to think, you know what, maybe the Lord is calling you. So if you hear the voice again, Samuel, say what? Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. When you see or catch a glimpse of something out of your spiritual eye, stop and say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. How does Jesus do that in your life? Does Jesus deal with your sin primarily? Or does he primarily deal with your need to be loved? The reality is, guys, he dealt with your sin. He dealt with it on the cross. When he said it was finished, he wasn't just looking for a line before he went in and gave up his spirit. He said it was finished because it was finished. And I think primarily he deals today with us, with our need for love, our need for connection, our need for the living water that will continually quench our thirst if we but just ask him. Amen?